0: Beth Stelling grew up in Ohio before moving to Chicago, where she studied with the Steppenwolf Theater before pursuing her career in stand-up comedy. She was named Best Stand-up in Chicago the year before she got new phases at Montreal's Just for Laughs Comedy Festival and then moved to Los Angeles. She has released two comedy albums, Sweet Beth and Simply the Beth, performed on both Conan and Jimmy Kimmel Live, and recorded half-hour specials for both Comedy Central and Netflix. More recently, Stelling has also found success behind the camera as a writer on series such as I Love You America with Sarah Silverman on Hulu, Crashing on HBO, and she's provided on-set punch-ups for the 2019 movie Good Boys. That year, she also launched a podcast with her mother for Earwolf's Stitcher Premium series called We Called Your Mom. Beth's first hour stand-up special, produced by Team Coco, was filmed March 7, 2020 in Minneapolis. Beth Stelling's Girl Daddy premiered in August 2020 on HBO Max. I sat down with Stelling over Zoom to talk about all of that, as well as where the comedy industry may go from here in treating women and women of color better whenever we reemerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. All that and more. So let's get to it. So first off, uh, Beth Stelling, congratulations on your HBO Max solo comedy hour which I did say, stream it.
1: Thank you! I read those.
0: <laughs> You're the one. Thank You're the you. one who's reading those.
1: <laughs>
0: so how does, it, how does it feel to know that you have a great tape of your most recent set?
1: That's... it feels good. It took me a while to even feel like it was great. I needed some time away, so uh, I was too close to the product. Mm. But as you know, and you've been around comics now for years... The elusive tape. Usually that elusive tape is a five-minute set that you're trying to get on late night. Right. And let's get real. My style of comedy is not necessarily fit for a late night appearance. I'm not saying I can't do it, but usually it's a miraculous formation of, uh, I don't know, I would say, maybe I should say a miraculous occurrence where I say, ooh, this will work as a late night set like a magical little five, because mm-hmm. I don't know, it's hard. In my opinion, maybe I'm making it harder than it is, but sometimes it feels hard to like encompass all that you are in five minutes and get it done naturally
0: and feel good. That's what made uh, uh, the most recent Jimmy Kimmel sets so interesting to me. Really? Because, well, Jimmy Kimmel always had a, had a different, unique approach to presenting – the late night stand-up sets. But the most recent iteration of that before the pandemic was to do it out of his new comedy club in Las Vegas.
1: Oh, right. That was not comfortable, though. I forgot about that late night set until you just
0: told me. I think I shut it it away in a box. How are you supposed to do a five-minute set in a comedy club? In Vegas
1: (laughs) is the key words. Are the key words. Oh my gosh. I get the idea and it was a good way to introduce the fact that he has this club and I was happily the guinea pig. I, I do, you know, appreciate Jimmy and he did, you know, he saw me at UCB and said, I want, want to put you on the show in 2015. And then he followed through. So whenever somebody sees you, likes you, takes a risk or wants to help get, get you out there, obviously you're going to have, um, some gratitude. So when he said, will you come to the club? We're going to throw to you. I thought it's going to be a gamble, but I, for me personally, look, I'm, um, I don't know. I'm, I guess a creature of comfort. And anytime I'm at a club for the first time, I'm not going to be at ease as, as I would, as if it's my fifth time back to the club. Mm -hmm. I mean, that could be just stating the obvious there, but I'm not someone who gets to a club and wherever I do it, I do it. There's factors that are going to make me more comfortable or not comfortable. I'm already not comfortable in Vegas. There are certain cities I feel like are just going to hate me, and that's not necessarily the best approach. But for me to never do the club, for the club to be set up as it is, which is tall ceilings and, you know, sort of – far apart, wide back. I I don't even know how to describe it. And I don't want to dump on Jimmy's club, but I told him how I felt. (laughs) I would like it to people to be like kind of closer. felt pretty spread out and never having been to that club, getting introduced. And we did a little like, you know, blocking, but, Mm -hmm. and then walk out and do a late night set (laughs) in Vegas. Ay, 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 ay.
0: Did you do it in the middle of a of a pre existing show or was it? I
1: would have loved to do it in the middle of a pre existing show. <laughs> no. It's just walking out and doing a late night set for people in Vegas who like are expecting someone who's maybe more over the top, like but I'm bump. Mm. The rest of the week the way I work Vegas is I open with a disclaimer that says, Hi, I'm a comedian, but I'm not someone who's gonna hit you over the head with punchlines. Uh, it's really more of a scavenger hunt. So best of luck to all of you. And that always helps my set. Because then they're listening and they're like kind of waiting for it as opposed to whatever they were expecting.
0: (laughs) Well, at least Vegas also did give you some material for the hour. That's true. You're right.
1: That's (laughs) true. That was a different um, time, but Mm -hmm. yes.
0: So um, this is a hard left turn, but... (laughs) Uh Hang I just tight <laughs> I just kept thinking uh because you have a podcast with your mom, yeah. and if looking back at all of your stand up and knowing that you grew up in ohio i I wonder if if I had told the teenage you in Ohio that when you were grown up you would be six su- <laughs> successful comedian <laughs> but also be doing a show with your mom. Uh-huh. <laughs> how would you react to that
1: you know we've always been very close like i am also i say we have like a healthy mother daughter relationship i've always i've always found it to be a teeny bit of a red flag when someone's like my mom's my best friend i i don't know why i just it irks me a little i'm just like yeah, there should be like she has the decorum of a mother you know like there's certain things like when I did Whitney's podcast, we we got a little dirty and I told my mom, you know, don't watch that one. <laughs> don't listen to that. It's not for you. Uh, so, so on, like I talk about my special on the spectrum of mother, mm-hmm. um, my mom's kind of like right there in the middle, you know, I could go to her about anything and pretty much talk to her about anything I needed for support, but we're not, she wasn't the mom that was like, if you're going to drink, do it at my house and here's condoms. You know, it was, <laughs> It was like a, what I like to think is a nice middle ground. Uh, There wasn't any sort of avoidance or conservatism that would have made me compartmentalize or, or, um, you know, shove things down or hide, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, So I'm thankful for that, but we had some rough patches too. I mean, in my teen years, absolutely. I fought with my mom, Um, but nothing so bad that I would be surprised that we would do something together in the future.
0: What about your dad? Is your dad surprised that the podcast is with your mom when, he's, he's, when he's the jealous. entertainer?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think he loves to say that I get my sense of humor from him, but my mom's very funny in, in a more subtle way. She, her humor almost comes from her naivete, you know, sort of, mm. um, yeah, like that, subtle and silly and and things like that. My dad's just more like in your face and doing like a high kick on the side of the road
0: <laughs> hey, that, that's, that's where the Some money pelvic
1: th- pelvic thrusting <laughs> it <laughs> is what. where the money is you'd be surprised I remember when he would like have me run in the invoice mm-hmm. and I think back whenever that would have been um he's been doing it for 29 years so back in I'm just gonna throw out a number because it could have been 96 or something like this or I don't even know well, how old would I have been then I love how I get caught in the minutia of everything. <laughs> anyway, that was a peek into my brain. Point is, sometime in the late 90s, I'm running an invoice, and he was getting paid like $35, 40 an hour. Now, it's not an eight-hour day, but no. it's a lunch rush. It's a dinner rush. It's a living. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I should I'd tell. sit in the
1: car. So then he had, to, he, he had a little deduction there for AC running in Florida. Mm. So I would sit in the car and bring them water and hang out. This is before iPhones, so I wasn't messing around. No. I was just like, when is it over?
0: <laughs> so wait, so where where did you find your own comedic voice, your instinct?
1: Um, I guess, like, I – so I – let me think. Now, I guess I chalk it up to sort of the early days of humor would have been just me being the youngest kid, and I always found myself being sort of outgoing, and that's how I got my – attention and stuff making my family and my sisters laugh mm-hmm. and then when it came to like professionally like over the years I knew that I liked that I knew I liked making people laugh and being silly because I was always you know kind of I was a I'm a type a comic so I was like very good in school but my report cards would say talks too much or disruptive in class and you know doesn't work well in groups so I was always meant to be a stand-up
0: but you um, but you not only talk too much you also pack so many jokes <laughs> per minute in there, which, that is, yeah. which is not a style that a lot of people have. So I'm wondering where that, where that instinct comes from.
1: I guess it's like, I, I mean, at the root of it is not wanting to bomb. So when people no. always ask me like, how do you be a comic? I say things like the way I look at a set is so sort of like a fence. You know, you have your posts, you're, you're, bigger jokes along the way and and you're you you do not want people having to go down to the floor and climb up a pole. You gotta build things in between, you know? So those little punches in between get you to the bigger pole. This is a bad way of describing it and that's why I don't have a stand up class available online. But I you know, it's kind of like you have you have your tenants and you have to build in between to get yourself there. And I guess mine just got real tight so it's almost like a full wall. <laughs> instead of you know and then also the fact that I I'm not just a stand-up anymore I think my style has changed over the years for sure so when I first started I wasn't mirroring anybody because I never was a stand-up fan I'm not saying I didn't like comedy I loved comedy I loved Jim Carrey, Robin Williams Chris Rock movies I quoted them to get laughs you know that's what I was doing as a kid um but I wasn't a stand-up student um you know I would say if I had to bring to mind any that make, that lit me up and make me think, Oh my gosh, this is a career. And made me think I could never do that. It would be like Gaffigan and Dane cook mm-hmm. seeing their stuff and being like, Oh my gosh, they're, you know, massively successful. So then when I thought about doing it, it was by encouragement of my friends and based off of my storytelling, you know, I'd come home from class and basically just stand in front of the TV and regale my roommates with whatever the day was like. And they loved it. I mean, that's, I'm not saying that in a pompous way. Like, they're the ones who were like, you have to do stand-up. So the odd part is when I finally started stand-up in Chicago in '07, the way it came out of me was probably less my personality like I was for my friends. Mm-hmm. It was more this subtle, deadpan quietness. I mean, I remember uh, comics that uh, giving me a hard time in Chicago, uh, you know, joking that I whispered my punchlines, that I'm up there real quiet and stuff. And I didn't do open mics because of that. I never felt comfortable going back to my, what I guess, if I had to look at it negatively, I'd call myself a wuss. But I'm just, you know, like I don't, I like to think of myself like a road dog. Like I can go anywhere and get up anywhere and go up all the time. But you shine when you feel good and comfortable and safe. That's why people work together repeatedly. That's why you see friends casting their friends. Because it's like, when you have that comfortability, you can shine. You know, you're. Good hands.
0: Did you did you just happen to be in Chicago in 07 when you started or did you go to Chicago specifically? I specifically
1: going? went there. Okay. I specifically went there to pursue theater. I interned at the Steppenwolf Theater between mm-hmm. my sophomore and junior year of college uh, and I learned a lot and I wanted to be you know on the stage of Steppenwolf and I was a theater major and That's I learned the- so much. Malkovich and okay. Gary Sinise um, uh- Joan Allen Rondi Reed, Amy Morton, Tina Landau. There's so many great ones that are involved. Um, Sheldon Patinkin.
0: But not um, comedians. K.
1: Todd Freeman. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of comedians that would have been involved. Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, Malkovich, I guess, in a way, but no stand-ups, really. Um, but, but what I, I got to basically, as the intern, I was auditing every class. So it was like viewpoints and Meisner and improv. Although I was falling asleep a lot. I might have had mono. Um, <laughs> the students always give me a hard time about that. Cause I'd be like taking, doing whatever I need to do. And then they look over on the ground and I was like asleep with my notebook. Um, but that's when I met a bunch of improvisers that summer. Warren okay. Lapkus, um, Al- Alana Johnston, Mary Beth, um, white. And they became my friends and took me under their wing and, and Hannah Hensley and, um, Lindsay Fisher. And Pat Babbitt, so I'm thinking of everybody, but but they were like, "Don't go back to school. Stay in Chicago." But you know, I wanted to finish school because of that type A in me. You know, I didn't, I could, I couldn't imagine not getting a degree. Um, and I was getting my theater degree, but I didn't do stand up that summer. I was too scared. I just like watched everybody else improvise, and I was, I was enamored with with, um, oh Jane. There was a girl named Jane that was so funny, and Taylor Burris, but. Anyway, I was watching mostly and being around these people who were pursuing comedy, but Lapkus was still going to Northwestern. So it's like she was, or was it DePaul? Sorry, but she was still in school. So it's like, I thought, man, I messed up. I should have chosen a school in a big city where I could do comedy at the same time. Um, But either way it was okay. I finished two years is kind of nothing. And I came back. Um, But, and that's when I, I came back to do theater and I did a bad, I did a play that was like, You know, not great. It's like Chicago storefront can be um, incredible. And I did something, I did some incredible storefront before I left my time in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But when I first got there, it's just, you know, I'm trying to apply what I learned in school, doing these monologues that are bad, (laughs) trying to get cast. I did get cast in one play, but it's like, you know, nobody comes to see it. You don't, you get paid like $100 for 12 weeks of work, you know, rehearsals at night. And so I was working a bunch of jobs.
0: You were still... you were still there when Just for Laughs came through Chicago. Yeah,
1: yeah I think I got to do at least one. That, that, that was short-lived, but mm-hmm. I did get into that festival, which was obviously a huge accomplishment at the time. Um, and it was right before uh, Jared Logan and Kumail Mangiani were leaving. That's when I started. Right. So they were on their way out.
0: Yeah, I was going to um, mention a bunch of names from, like, the Lincoln Lodge and all that. Yeah, group.
1: Jocelyn Hughes was on her way out. Kara Bowler, um, Allison Lee Lieb- Lieber. Um,
0: Brooke Van Popelin.
1: Yes, Brooke Van Poplin, um, um Renee Gotier, yeah. Mike Bridenstine. They were all on their way out. Um, oh, Hannibal was still there. He stuck around a good amount. Um, mm-hmm. He was he, he and Michael Palasek were the ones who had who were like in our scene when I was first starting. They're the ones who were like, you know, everybody's kind of looking up to in the way because they were getting some breaks, yeah, late night sets and stuff like that. So. Um, that was cool to watch, like to see that it could happen for us in Chicago.
0: But, but coming out of acting first, when you eventually decided to move to LA, did you have a game plan in terms of what the goal was? You know, for people my age, I'm, I'm a decade plus older than you. For people my age, the be all end all for standups was to try to get a sitcom. Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then... And that was a
1: reality. That used to be a reality at Just for Laughs. You know, like Greg Fitzsimmons. Mm-hmm. When it was his time there, I remember I wrote with him on Crashing, and I remember him telling me, like, you know, Aspen and Just for Laughs. That was, like, if you popped off there, you were getting a sitcom. And now it's, like, who? <laughs> who was a new face? Who was the 500th new face? You
0: well, know, actually, now it's come all the way around to where it's, like, skipped stand-ups and gone to front... Front-facing video people are
1: That's now the true. ones who
0: are getting deals. You're
1: right. You're right. So absolutely right. I remember, um, and you know, no disrespect, but I, I had no clue who Lily, Lily Singh was. Mm-hmm. And I remember her being there one year. I don't know. I don't think it was my new faces year. I think it was a return visit. But I remember someone kind of saying, like, "Oh my gosh, there's like there's a Lily Singh, and she's got like millions of followers." And you know, I'm not. A, I just don't watch YouTube. I don't listen to podcasts really. I I just wasn't aware. So, and, and of course I think she's talented. Um, but yeah, I had no clue. And so you're right. Like YouTubers and, and Viners started and to get spots. Yeah. Yeah. And TikToks. And... <laughs> <laughs> That's when my, when my dad was, my dad let us drive in Florida when we were like nine. I mean, mm-hmm. not really, but I remember driving home from my grandma's probably when I was 13 or 14 or something. My dad just was teaching us to drive early. And, uh, when, uh, he wanted us to use our turn signal. He'd say, mm-hmm. TikTok, get him. TikTok, get him. Anyway, that made me think of that. TikTok. <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. I mean, someone sent me, like, someone on Instagram was like, look, Beth, you, your clip is getting a bunch of views. That was, mm-hmm. like, a couple weeks ago. And I clicked on it, and I was like, oh, cool, thanks for letting me know. What does this mean? <laughs> I, have, I have no clue. It's just people karaoke-ing my jokes, which is kind of cool and fun to watch. but I. I don't know what it means, yeah. and it, and also they, if you tag me, it's someone else. It says best Stelling, and then the bio is, "How do I delete this?"
0: Oh, no. <laughs> Meanwhile, in this summer of twenty twenty, you have people like Sarah Cooper, who uh-huh. has a Netflix deal. She just got a sitcom script deal, uh, and then there's this other comic, Jeff Wright, who just started uh, work as a writer for Seth Meyers. So it's wow. Uh, it's a so what's network.
1: Jeff Wright? Is he a front facing? You mean person? Yeah. yeah. Camera. Okay. I don't know who that is.
0: (laughs) That's because you're not on the TikTok.
1: Yeah, I'm not on the TikTok.
0: No. Okay, but for you, when you ended up getting started and get these writing jobs, starting with crashing, but then it's led to all these other opportunities for you with both TV and movies. So when that happened, since you came out of a theatrical background, were you thinking, okay, this is a new path? or?
1: I was terrified. It took me like one. So I remember after new faces, sorry, I also didn't really fully answer your question of how I got my style. I just think, I just think it's evolved over time. I think I just wrote like, like Mm -hmm. I wrote like a theater monologue. Like that's how I wrote my standup. I would sit at my computer and just write like a chunk, you know, and then memorize it and then try to make it sound like it wasn't memorized. And um, anyway, and then I guess just over time, I was able to get closer to my personality a little more lively you know, mm-hmm. I, it's like, you, I think the biggest challenge is making your friends laugh and people think you're the funniest of the friends. And then how do you get that on stage in front of strangers in front with a mic? So anyway, that, that's, that kind of answers it, but yeah. I didn't model myself after anybody and I couldn't control, like, I didn't say I'm going to be subtle and dark and deadpan. You know, I was just like, this is what, how it's coming out. <laughs> and then over the years, I was able to be a little more present myself, mm-hmm. comfortable I guess that that's the answer. But anyway, so then the next thing you just asked me which was a good question was
0: once you started to get these writing jobs yes. because because you came from a theatrical background were you thinking, "Oh, okay, this is actually a good path for me. Maybe a more of a, an organic fit than stand-up was." Or were you thinking, "Okay, this is financial stability and or or what did yeah. you think?"
1: So after new faces, I moved to LA. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, you know, that was the next plan I thought. And I got some meetings from my set. Cause I would say I did, I, I wasn't a standout, but I, and I, my class was insanely talented, but I was consistent. You know, I went up, I told my jokes, I got laughs. I never bombed my D off. So <laughs> when I got these meetings, I was hoping, I had an agent at the time, but I was hoping to get management or whatever it would be. And they said like, we loved your, this, you know, um, what else do you have? And I'm like, nothing. <laughs> I, I do what you saw, you mm-hmm. know? And I, so writing was really daunting to me. I didn't think I could do it at all. So meaning like, which is so silly because of course I write my own jokes. <laughs> Who would be writing my jokes? Um, so I basically stand up as a way to prove that you can write, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a, you can't help but show what you do because it's you, only you. Um, but I remember, so that felt very inadequate. Then after that, I felt like, oh gosh, I'm just a up. And then I watched some of my peers, even from that New Faces class, who I loved, like Sean O'Connor, go on to get writing jobs. And I, this is so silly, but you know, I didn't. I moved out here with not a lot, and my my mom happened to be turning sixty, and um, she was going to buy herself a new car, so I took her. I think it was an O2 or something, Mercury Sable. And I drove that out here with all my belongings. And, and that was like what I had. And I remember seeing Sean like get a writing job and, and then get a Prius. And I just remember having that be like a goal <laughs> of mine. I was like, I want to get a Prius and I want a writing job. You know, like, and he was always supportive of me and still continues to be. He's brought me in on projects, but it felt like I couldn't do it. I didn't understand how I would prove that I could write. And so it took me three years, my first three years out here to finish my own pilot script as a, just as a sample. Cause they were like, they were like, we want to get you work, mm-hmm. but we can't, but what do we show them? Right. Like clips just aren't enough. Like one Conan said is not enough to get a writing job. They said anything, Beth, short stories, like, what do you got? And, um, I'm slow. Like I take my time. I'm definitely slower to work. I actually, okay. Maybe you don't want to say that, um, because I sometimes am part of myself, and then I can turn around a freaking punch-up script in like two days. So the point is, I was slow to make my first pilot script because I didn't think I could do it. But what I did was read all the scripts that were picked up that year, and it, it, similar to how I started stand-up, I started basically casing the joint in Chicago. What's this? What is this? What is it like? And I would go to shows. And basically be like, I can do that. So I read all the scripts and I was like, I can do that. <laughs> you know, like not in this huge like you know, pompous way, mm-hmm. but a way that was like, This is what's sold, then I can I can do this. So I, I got, you know, I saw the all the ways that people were doing and then I made my script and and it was good. And that's when I was able to get meetings. So I'm just saying it took me a while to get the confidence and understand how to do it. Cause I didn't go to writing school. I didn't go to screenwriting school or whatever. So I had to kind of teach myself. And I will say like, even when I first got my writing job on crashing, that was my very first besides ridiculousness. I did a little work on that, but that's not really writing. It's more just verbal <laughs> pitching and ideas, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but I just want to credit ridiculousness because <laughs> it, that definitely saved me, you know, from a, having to work in it, one extra job. And um, It
0: gets you to the Prius.
1: Yes, closer to the Prius. Um, and so I even was scared then, you know, when I got that job. Like, oh, God, I didn't have final draft until I got assigned a script. <laughs> uh, um, you know, because it's, it was a little expensive. And then also I just, I think I wrote my pilot in whatever it's called, Celtics, which is the free online version.
0: You got me. I've been I've been a journalist for oh boy almost thirty years, and uh, people ask me about writing screenplays, and I'm I still have no I have no idea. I mean I know I could learn, but oh
1: yeah you could, but exactly. It That's feels the thing. So like to me. I knew stand up was what I did, so why would I? Why can't that just be enough? Mm-hmm. But okay, so you know what else I had a resentment because I was like, why can't I just be a stand up? And I, I don't trust, you know, I was learned early about lawyers and things through mm-hmm. my parents' divorced and I just don't trust. And so it felt like with my managers and agents, like, oh, you think I'm funny, but I'm you don't want me because you can't make money off me. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel resentful. So that's another reason I kind of put it off where it's like, you just want to make money off of me being a writer. I mean, it is their job, but that bothered me a little. So that was another aspect of it where I was just like, but thank goodness... They pushed it because then, yes, they get paid. But then also I diversified my talents to the mm. point where, in a pandemic, I can survive.
0: So let me ask you this then. Speaking of the pandemic and how it's made so many of us rethink how everything works. Yeah. Hearing you talk about needing to have confidence and needing to have trust, how much, how much is that a driving force between? behind all of like the, the inequalities of gender and race that we talk about in the comedy business? Is it is it because you know white guys just have that inherent overconfidence and and that pushes down women and, and comedians of color who think, well, I don't trust that, that the industry is going to be there for me or I don't have the confidence that I can be at the level, even though all of these white guys are mediocre, so why even can't when it, I do it? I mean-
1: that makes me think of like, you know, clubs that headline sometimes Mm -hmm. like for a while there, I forget how many years I've been headlining now. It's not even that many, like in the grand scheme of things, but it's like you take, I could take a picture. If I took a picture of every calendar when I left the club, you know, the calendar will have like six weeks worth of faces. So, I mean, so many times I was the only woman. So it's like the female headliners on the road, there are definitely more now than there ever were. But I'm talking about, like, the main clubs, like, some of the best clubs in the country. It's, like, it's increased. But, wow, when you're the only one, it is, it's a lot of pressure. It's so much pressure. And you have to be able to fail. It's almost like they'd rather have a mediocre white guy because that's just kind of, like, it's the same thing people feel when they, you know, there's jokes about this. Like, when you get on the plane and the pilot's a man or whatever there's just like there's that inherent bias like Mm -hmm. am i in good hands because it looks like there's this chick who's not too sure about herself up there you know so it's like you have to give women the chance to headline because then we can't get get, or we can't get good at it and it takes practice it takes practice to get good on late night in my opinion yeah and practice how to get good at late night is by doing late night on national tv so it's like because you can run the set but nothing compares to being in that studio, getting introduced, walking out from that curtain and knowing that you're going to be on TV and on, on freaking dumb YouTube forever. So I think they feel like, I've talked to clubs about it. We're like, well, we want to get more women in here. And it's like, well, then you got to let them fail a bit because they'd rather just go with a guy who's like kind of mediocre, but we'll do it.
0: I don't yeah, know.
1: You got things.
0: Yeah, I was looking at the... I was actually looking at the comedy club schedules uh, this past winter and I started writing down the month's worth of headliners at all of the major comedy clubs and the numbers were skewed so heavily toward men. And the few women that were headlining these comedy clubs, most of them were one-nighters. They weren't given a full weekend. And half of the ones who were given one-nighters weren't women that you would know from stand-up comedy. They were known they were bringing their podcast there yeah. or they were known as being like a YouTube star. Right. They're having a to special event. Of, yeah.
1: So, so they're like, lo- you know, and obviously it's, it's a money game too. I mean, if I look back, I mean, I was robbed for years by my home club, you know, to the point where the manager was telling me, you gotta ask for more money because it's just like, how are you to know? I don't know. It's, it's, it, there's, there's a business side to it as well where which is confusing and you go the thing about stand-up is you go from saying yes to everything to the point where you're in a freaking someone's living room with four of their friends because you just said yeah I'll be there you know you go to, from saying yes to everything to then what saying I demand this I demand that I it's hard to like step into your power as someone who like that's kind of how I feel where it's like I was just like go 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 head down keep working and then it's your turn what do you want and you're like what do you mean? What do I want? Thanks for having me. Sorry. I'm here. You know, like it's just, it, it, it's, uh, it's hard to transition into that role of, of, of that,
0: I suppose. Especially, but, especially when comedians don't talk to each other about money.
1: No, I do. I definitely do. I just was I was on, with Naomi at Paragon and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, she shares numbers. I share numbers. She was not getting paid enough. And so that's the thing. I mean, which is extra disappointing because she's a black woman. So it's like, look, is she selling out right now? No. How do you sell out? By going back every year and building your audience, like drops in a bucket. So they need to invest and do their work as clubs, but why would they when they can just bring in someone, like you're saying, for one night on YouTube for a guaranteed audience? So in a lot of ways, it's like, yes, I understand. It's a business. But that's why I'm extra thankful to clubs like the comedy attic. In Bloomington, or Comedy on State, or Vermont Comedy Club, who says we like you, we want you here, and pay you a decent wage, and and cultivate a relationship where you come back year after year, like drops in a bucket, like Dan Soder and I have talked about. It's drops in a bucket building your crowd, and then something like a Netflix half hour is a <clears throat> extra pour of water in there. So how is Naomi supposed to make more money and bring in more people if she's not given the chance to keep coming back every year or whatever it is? And also sometimes it's, it, you had to start early with that because she's a grown woman. Does yeah. she want to be, you know what I'm saying? Like this, that's her own personal story that does, <laughs> is neither here nor there. But I'm just saying, you know, that's why when you're a young comic, they need, she, she's, she's brilliant. She's far past the low wage is what I'm saying. So right. when you're a young comic, you take the risk on someone and say like, you show promise. We care. Let's get you back every year. And that exists, I know, because I've talked to comics who have experienced that male comics
0: so well i mean the uh the blessing and the curse of 2020 is that we're in a great pause except yeah. for except for a few clubs that are you know brazenly and blindly going forward but m- <laughs> mostly in america it's a it's a, it's been a great pause in live stand-up comedy and i wonder from your perspective do you think do you think we'll come out of this any differently?
1: I mean, on one hand, like, how could we not? And then on the other hand, comics are all so different. Like some of them might be hot out the gates with the stuff they had in March
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because we're creatures of repetition and maybe they didn't write anything. I mean, we'll never be the same after this. It's just, that's why like even watching my special, it was like a visit to the past. I'm like touching people in the audience, even if it's just a fist pump. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, that whether it's, it's invisible in your head or, or actual behind plexiglass, there's going to be something between you and the crowd, I think. It's going to be hard to get that flow and energy exchange back. We're adjusting though, even not being able to lip read or see people's faces all the way. There's like blocks, blockages. Um, So it's like, it's tough to say. It's also, you know, someone had written up something like about my show being in, you know, the before times. Right. And how it's nice to not have what I did in choir material, you know, like, because that's what's inevitable. And I think that that person, I think it was Margaret Lyons who wrote that. It's like, that's, she's right. It is inevitable. We're all on one big at midnight episode and the prompt is quarantine. So, and the, my instinct is you're going to come see me, and you're going to hear uh, zero quarantine material because <laughs> you know I don't want to. But
0: but when you do, I'll say points.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'll also, be so
0: relieved not to hear more quarantine material.
1: Yes, I mean because let's think about it. I am someone who's like you can you can only do what you know from your perspective, okay. Like, duh, that's what stand up is. It's like you're, it's, it's a narrow perspective because you're one human. Sometimes the unfortunate part as a woman in comedy, if you, if there are less of us, you're somehow accidentally speaking through the entire gender that happens less with males. They're more individualized, but it's like now. So, so, so my point is, yes, I can only speak from my perspective. However, I do try to be, um, what should I say? Mindful of how I'm gonna come across. My goal is never to hurt any one person or a group of people. So it's like, I'm trying to be mindful. And that was actually paralyzing to me when I early in this quarantine, because I felt um, guilty that I was okay. You know, cause I'm thinking of, I have family members of course, one's an, my sister's a nurse, my brother-in-law's a doctor, like, you know, they were at risk, but also like, I'm thinking of friends of mine comics that are just out here already scraping by that are servers and then didn't have work and now have to go back to work in masks and they are at risk. So it's like, I don't know. I just felt guilty. Why would I be making jokes about like, oh, I watched a bunch of shows and I don't fit in my jeans and, and people are out here freaking scared and poor and afraid of losing their house. So I, don't, I didn't really do any podcasts. I didn't. And even some of the ones I did, I was freaking weird. Cause I felt like really paralyzed by like, how are you? What are you doing in quarantine? All that's going through my head is like, people are freaking scared. So you want me to be like, Oh, I don't know. God, I was just like playing cello. I've just been reading a lot and it's cool. I just, cause who's listening to the podcast? People who are maybe like driving to work or freaking homeschooling their kids. And so, yeah, that's, that, that's not the best way to live. You know, always worried about upsetting someone, but I would, I just felt, yeah, like paralyzed by that. So I I am very aware that when I go out on the road again, my quarantine experience is going to be very different from my crowd. My crowd is like typical, like I've working class people, you know, I don't know. I don't have some sort of like, I just want to stay connected to them.
0: What what about um, in terms of, you know, you just talked about, you know, recognizing your your audience, but what about in terms of fellow comedians and how the industry treats women and treats comedians of color and sometimes covers up for men who behave badly in this business?
1: Yeah. Gosh, it's so weird. And yeah. it's <laughs> it's odd. It's like it's so weird who's saved and not. Like there's certain there's comics who not even comics, but you know, entertainers who have either actually been in trouble with the law or admitted to it or whatever. And it's just like, they just keep working because it never like blew up or something. And then someone like, of course the, everyone brings up Louie. I'm not saying you did, but you know, that's like a name that often gets brought up and it's like, (sighs) everybody talks about how he's canceled and this or that. And it's like, to me, I'm like, he's fine. He's touring. He's like, like, I always joked, like, people would ask me in those early, when the world was still moving and I was doing radio, well, what do you think about Louie? I was like, you know, at base, it's just abuse of power, you know, in, his, in the, you know, simplest form. And then also, like, what's going to happen to him? Oh, I don't know. His audiences will still come to see him perform. They just probably won't be with their girlfriends. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what to tell you. I just think, I also, like, there's something to be said about, like it's just a, it's such a big conversation because like what what do we do now how do we handle these things people right. don't know how to act sarah's getting dragged for being in the same photo with him you know at camp Chappelle. so it's like and, and she was dragged for the things she said about him and so so you know you don't want to be scared to talk about these things but how are we we're just going to keep getting mad at each other for right. you know being in touch or not being in touch with someone or how do you move forward or don't move forward you know, I had an, an interview at JFL that I hated when someone asked me, like, you know, do you feel safe with, with Louis here? And I'm like, part of me felt like, are you asking the male comics what they're doing to make us feel safe in the green room? I doubt it. So it's just like, it's a little frustrating. Um, and then on one hand, too, and who knows how this will be perceived, but it's like, I'm not saying let's give Louis an award for admitting to it, but like, that's rare so it was like the day before he admitted to it. We had comics all over Facebook like, "Oh, you didn't do it." Like those girls weren't even funny, and fuck that. He's my dude. The next day, Louie's like, "Nah, I did it." They're all like, radio silent.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, like, meanwhile, all the comedians who have been brought up this summer, all right. of them are deny, 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 and pu- like and president. put it back and put it back on the women who are accusing them. And then, just like you you pointed out with Sarah, it's like. Communities like Whitney are getting dragged. It's like, oh, it's, not her, it's not her fault that these guys are behaving badly.
1: No, it's odd. Um, even in the, in our little community, it's like, I don't know how to put it. Um, I'm being silly when I say this, but it's like, mom will take care of it. You know, like mom will clean up.
0: <laughs> but who's, but who's mom?
1: I guess women comics. I don't even know, you know, like why are we responsible for these boys? Cause they're men. They're, you know, we may all be paid to have a childlike quality to us, you know, like to be playful and funny. And, you know, we didn't have to totally grow up, but, but, but they're grown men. They're not young comics, like messing up. They're in their forties and fifties.
0: Yeah. They're my peers.
1: It's, I guess the, the, you know, instead of maybe some pointing fingers at, at the female comic figureheads of our time. I'm not saying turn it on the men and it's their fault. It's like, well, what does this look like? What's the next step? I mean.
0: Well, that's, that's what you joke about in your hour. It's like, it's, it's them who should be responsible. It's not up to. to you. Yeah.
1: It's definitely not. We, 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 uh, I think. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I don't know, I don't know where I was going to go with that actually, but having to say even our opinion on it is odd, I suppose. And if, And that's the thing, because of social media, everyone is too accessible. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like you shouldn't be able to talk to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like think about someone even like whatever a person, figurehead from the past, Robin Williams wasn't in his mentions. Mm-hmm. you know, saying like, oh, yeah. sorry for that joke I told or this or that, or I didn't mean it to come that way. And here's what I think. Well, now nah, that's not why you should think that because I'm on. So I guess when you're worried about what's going to backfire at you, it's harder to have actual productive discourse. Yeah. Although
0: you, when you're mentioning people of the past, you also reminded me like I've heard you mention Richard Pryor on some other podcasts. Yeah. And one of the other, one of the other brilliant things about Pryor that, I really saw his failings, whether it's Louis or the guys who are being mentioned today, is prior owned up to everything on stage. Like, he was like, I am, I am far from perfect. I, I have beat my wife. I have set myself on fire. I have Yeah, into- and
1: by the way, I, that was the first time I've ever watched him. Oh, wow. It was like three weeks ago. Not out of any certain reason other than, like, I told you. I was not a student of stand-up. I didn't idolize anyone. I've grown to love comics, like, like Sarah, Maria. And, um, but like, yeah, I think when I watched that special and he was making me laugh so hard, the things I loved, like, I agree with you. I do. not I, by me saying I like Richard Pryor, I don't condone domestic violence. I also think he's a very complicated person. And the way I watched him in that set to me was like, you're saying was working through pain and fear and, and trauma. My God. He's making jokes about the chokehold. I, I mean, and it's sad. It's really disturbing that this many years later, you know what, it kind of sent me in a spiral because it's like, like not a spiral, that's not true. It just made me bummed because it's like, in some ways, oh, oh, part of me thought like, oh, would he, the people, these comics who praise him as like one of the greats, isn't he technically a social justice warrior? <laughs> like, don't you hate that? Um, yeah. So there's that aspect. And then second of all, it's a bummer because it didn't change. It's 41 years later and people are dying. Black people are dying from that same exact thing. So to me, that was upsetting because I was like, I'm not, I don't set out to make jokes to change the world, but you know, there's definitely a part of me that would like to make you look at something differently and in turn, think a different way. And I think he was able to make it funny and, and, and similarly, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm Richard Pryor. I'm just saying like, like he, he cared he wanted to talk about that. I felt like he was, it just made me think, is it nothing more than catharsis? Does stand up maybe not really create change? And to me, that's
0: like, damn. (laughs) Well, I I hope it, (laughs) I hope it does still have that power for change. And I, and I do appreciate how in your hour, you know, you take on sexual politics in a way that's very deft and, and, and I think might get through to audiences in a way that a lot of, other comedians, women or men, who talk about these issues, don't because because th- when they bring up those subjects, it, people will just tune out. But I think you handle it in a much better way.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I hope so. I think I did that by trial and error. You know, people don't. In so many ways, people don't like hearing the R word, and so to me, it yeah. After saying it for a while on stage, it bothered me how uncomfortable people got. And I had saves for it, but the saves aren't enough, so I had to find another way. And it also bothered me because it's like no one wants to say the word, but it's happening all the time. And why don't you like hearing the word? Is it just another way to keep everyone silent because you don't want to hear it? So, yeah, a lot of it was, you know, channeled into to, to finding a way to, t- to say those words and talk about it. Um, and that's kind of what you see in the hour.
0: <laughs> well, I want to, I, I, I promised I wouldn't keep you this long, but I want to end on something lighter. So let me ask you about your new, uh, merchandise with, uh, comedian tees.
1: Yay. Yeah. That, that's like, you know, my friend, Janae she's open for me in, um, Denver. She's just new to LA, which stinks because the pandemic hit and she's <laughs> a great comic. Um, but she, she must, she, uh, we did a little watch party last night and she was like, you finally have merch. It's about time, you know, cause I just never have really. Mm-hmm. And so this was exciting because Ron Funches started working with Bull of the Collar, which was like they were doing wrestling tees and stuff. He's a big wrestling fan. Then they branched off to do comedian tees. And so Ron was like, you should do it, you know, come join the family or whatever. So this is my, my venture into t shirts. And I had Kat Shober and Barry Blankenship do some of the designs. We mm-hmm. obviously, you know, talked about it together. And, um, from the special, you can see I've got a Jeremy shirt that's written in P. Um. <laughs> <Check out> me,
0: me. <laughs> 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 I gotta send
1: one to Jeremy. I need yeah. I need okay. to get his info. His wife messaged me. Oh wow. Yeah, but I need to find where that is because my messages are a little insane right now.
0: Um, but what is it about comedian tees and like Ron Funch's starting this division that made merch more appealing to you than it had been in the past?
1: Well, because um they are so helpful and also on uh, um like comedian tees in general my point person is named ryan Mm -hmm. and he's just like so quick and easy and you it's an easy process and um i was really concerned about quality like i my my biggest fear would be someone ordering a shirt and it'd be trash Uh you know what i mean and i because like i don't want to name names but there were some other companies that were trying to get you know, UTA was trying to hook me up with, and I'm like,
0: "Yeah, that, I mean, that's I'm why." I'm scared asked, they're
1: going to be bad. Well, so, yeah, I
0: ask, what was it about comedian teas that sold you? On I that?
1: trusted Ron first mm-hmm. of all, and I talked to Marty Derosa, who's a uh, Chicago comic that I started with, and he mm-hmm. said, "No, they're good quality," and um, and there's all different kinds of options. If you want something even higher quality, you just have to pay a little more in the drop-down menu. So if you want to sh- ensure that that I liked, and um, and then what? Why else did I like it? I don't know. You can just upload designs so easy and choose what kind of shirt you want. And they do it all for me. And, you know, the, the not-so-secret side of it, but, you know, obviously it's a way for me to make a little extra money. And they offer comics, whatever you would call it, a fair wage, as opposed to some of these other sites. Mm-hmm. Um, some comics are only getting, like, $3 a T-shirt on a, what, $20, $25 sale? So that's not great. So they they have the performers and wrestlers it seems to be in mind when when doing setting up the business so that was nice and i set the price so okay. um yeah <laughs> so i i i I'm, I'm a bad saleswoman honestly i when i managed the coffee shop of course i charged everyone but i felt bad about it mm. <laughs> if i could make everything free i would
0: well <laughs> i'll get your dad on the on the phone and he'll uh
1: if you call that number he will pick up
0: <laughs> Talked to somebody
1: in Niagara Falls one time who wanted to see if it was real.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not encouraging anyone to do that.
0: <laughs> Leave Bert alone. <laughs> Leave Bert alone and watch Girl Daddy on HBO Max. Yes, please. Let's
1: first.